0: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML.
1: Want to talk about a couple things from that's going on in our city. Boy, uh, there are times when it seems like trying to keep up with stuff that's going on at City Hall requires you to be drinking out of a fire hose. And this is one of those times. It is. There are so many stories and so many issues that are currently going on at Council and at City Hall. Uh, John Best is the publisher of the Bay Observer. Joins us now, John. How are you tonight?
2: Just great, nice to be with you, Scott.
1: Well, I'm glad we can connect because uh, you still have internet, <laughs> apparently unlike the city <laughs> yeah. um i'm I'm so uh, for people who don't know, the city has had a a cyber security incident they're calling it that's been going on for three days now they've got um i t systems down um Most of the important things are up, but uh, transit is one of them, and uh, some other ones are down. But, John, they put out a post today, an update today on this, and there is one line buried literally right in the middle. I don't know if this is intentional or not, but it is literally smack right in the middle of the list of all the points. And it says, presently, it is too early to identify what type of information has been accessed that cause you any concern that the city may have in which, which has information about you and I, and everyone else listening, they don't even know what's been tapped into yet.
2: Oh, sure. It, it, it's a matter of concern. Personally, I think they'd probably have my address and my tax roll. And I guess, you know, if somebody wants to look at that, that's fine. But you know, there are, there really are, um, all kinds of, depending on how deep this thing goes. I'm thinking particularly of uh, our our health department, our public health department. There could be who knows, there could be medical information there because uh, all sorts of diseases and uh, lab reports are are sent off to uh, public health uh, as part of their data collection. So, Potentially, at least, that that could be a problem. But we, we don't actually know if personal information has, has been accessed. And I, I wouldn't want to go too far down that road until we know.
1: It is just, yeah, it, it I look at this and, I mean, I don't really understand. I'm not an IT person. I don't really understand, except that somehow it appears someone, It does. this doesn't sound like it was an accidental thing where there was just a glitch in the system. It sounds like this was an intentional thing. And I'm just kind of surprised, or I don't know if I should be, that the city's cybersecurity was hackable. I mean, I guess anybody's is hackable, I suppose, but I'm just sort of surprised by this.
2: Well, the Toronto Public Library uh, spent, I think, several months. In fact, I heard somebody being interviewed today. Uh, their system was hacked back in the fall and, and the uh, the representative was uh, on television today uh, saying how pleased they are to be back up. but. She also suggested that they're not 100% back up. So these cyber attacks, uh, we've seen it, uh, you know, you see it all through uh, the international news. Uh, The, you know, the people that want to get into these systems are increasingly sophisticated and, and what might have been a secure system a year or two ago is not. So I I saw quite a bit of criticism of Hamilton online. I I don't think that's warranted at this point. Uh, There's, you know, the the prevalence of this problem uh, certainly goes way beyond Hamilton. And uh, I'm quite content to just let the matter roll out and hope for the best.
1: Yeah, and and you're right that it's not, it's certainly not just here. I mean, we just had, well, although we just had another story in Hamilton couple days ago about the Hamilton Community Foundation that was uh, the victim of a scam. So it's, you know, and that was through computer stuff. So it's, it's, it it does happen. It's just, it's somehow it seems amazing to me with a, a, a a company for lack of a better word, as big as the city that it's
2: still doable, but I guess it's doable anywhere. Well, you know, I think I spend 10 minutes every morning uh, uh, between deleting junk mail But also uh, deleting and blocking messages that say things like uh, your your password is about to subscribe, please enter it here and we'll renew it. You know, you get that kind of stuff going on. So they're out there, they're phishing, they're they're getting more sophisticated. Uh, Hamilton Community Foundation is not the first place that has been uh, nailed with the fake vendor scam, which appears to be what happened to them. It's i I'll tell you, it's a wild west
1: out there. John, I, I, this, this whole, and I think everybody knows now the story, it's coming up at council tomorrow of the Stony Creek parking lot that eight councillors said they, Stony Creek BIA and Chamber of Commerce and small businesses say they need this parking lot. Eight other councillors say you're bad people, basically. I mean, that's what the social media response has been because you're putting parking ahead of human beings. This thing has
2: gotten a little sour. I agree Uh, you know I haven't seen this kind of uh, uh, on an issue like this I haven't seen this kind of lobbying this this is in the category of of what we went through with LRT um, you know which was a a very divisive project when it was voted on the half dozen times that it was voted on Um, you know and what what kind of bothers me is uh, I, I think you know We know that there's a ideological rift on this council and uh, this 8-8 vote, and we had another 8-8 vote uh, not too long ago. Um, It seems to me that uh, people have got to start thinking about what are you going to do after this is over? Because uh, some of this, uh, I'm going to call it bullying, um, the the way uh, social media ganged up on uh, Councillor Francis on this issue. Um, it, it It's out and out bullying. You even got the mayor. Uh, I've never seen a mayor uh, out and out in public call for somebody to please change their vote. Uh, all that kind of arm twisting normally and and you know, and that's part of the game takes place behind the scenes. But to call somebody out publicly um, when when you're in a position of authority of, of being the mayor, I, I think that's excessive uh, in in this case. Uh, I mean, they're trying to make it look like a doomsday scenario. Uh, quite frankly, uh, there are probably dozens of other sites uh, available where this could take place. Uh, people are getting out their crayons and marking up maps to, to show that there's all kinds of parking uh, in the downtown area of Stony Creek. But uh, it's a bit of a gang up and and uh, it's it's not very, um, you know, it's not very nice to look at, frankly.
1: Uh, I think there's also an awful lot of parking in the downtown, period. And yet we've seen on Maine and Sanford, Darko Vranich wanted to build a affordable housing building. And that was rejected by the city for a variety of reasons. Just in the paper today and going to be talked about at council tomorrow, uh, Philpot Church, that a developer is has bought that property wants to put up two towers the city says no, now that's a heritage building, and so we're going to have to cut back on that if we're really serious and consistent about how urgent the housing crisis is shouldn't then all the projects just go through every councilor just wave away any kind of constraints and any concerns and say got to build it it's the urgency got to build it isn't that doesn't that make sense then well that's
2: what they're saying about stony creek um You know, I I would hate to see us abandon uh, planning principles completely, but, you know, if you look at the Philpott Church, um, it was a red brick building when it was built over 100 years ago, 120 years ago almost, and then in the 50s, they covered it with uh, what you could kindly call angel stone, and, uh, you know, I watched the presentation uh, by the people. Uh, that are supporting uh, the demolition of that church, not only the builder, but the congregation. They, they've actually already sold the church. They're moving to the Lincoln Alexander Center. And I guess my question is, okay, so if council rejects this, uh, what you basically have is the congregation has moved on. You now have a, a, a developer uh, sitting with a piece of useless property. I don't know how that helps anything, and and I guess the other point is, the uh, th- they had a consultant who showed what happens when you pull the the I'm calling it angel stone when you pull the the cladding off the building and look at the the original red brick underneath, and it was in very, uh, the two spots uh, that were shown were in very very bad condition. So uh, I'm not sure where this goes, but you're basically saddling people with a building that essentially nobody wants, including the people who worship there. Again, it
1: seems to me though, that we are saying that a building for affordable housing, a building for housing period is an absolute urgency and almost a human right in one part of town in Stony Creek. But in other parts of town, well, there's reasons why we shouldn't do that. and it just it doesn't seem consistent.
2: Yeah, I uh, was in communication with uh, with the representative of Ranich today, and one of the comments that they made was, uh, you know we're we're really going to have to sit down if if we're going to do affordable housing uh, and and if we're going to involve the private sector at all in in um, providing affordable housing. We've really got to look at some of these impediments. We got to get serious about. Uh, they talk about fast tracking, but uh, it's it's still not happening in a significant way in Hamilton. Uh, thank God we've got a charitable sector that's doing their best to build affordable housing, but they're building them in in dozens at a time uh, when we need hundreds. And uh, you know, I'm I'm sure there there are design issues with the. With the Vranich project that need to be addressed, but when you've got somebody that thinks they can do it, if they can do it once, they might be able to do it again. And then you look at the whole development industry. How many other people are in that category where maybe they're starting to do some, um, you know, some estate planning and they see a value in uh, in some philanthropic uh, uh, endeavors. Uh, I mean, we saw it with hospitals. We saw it with Tim Horton. Uh, you know, that's the reason why these generous uh, offers are being made. It has to do with estate planning in, in many cases. There is, um is, I've had this thought
1: before, and I, I'm I'm halfway joking, but only halfway, that I really sometimes feel like the city should just simply hand over all affordable housing projects to indwell and says, you do it because you do it really well and you make it happen and we'll get out of the way. And you know what, John, we'd probably be way ahead of the game if we let them just do
2: it. Well, if they, you know, with money, I'm, you know, with the, the right kind of uh, money, I'm sure they would do it. But, you know, there, there's a there's affordable housing, there's there's housing with supports, there's all different kinds of housing. and And some of what we need are simply relatively affordable apartments for people who are working. The majority of the people that are uh, having difficult finding a a place to live right now are people who have jobs, people who are not addicted. I was just going to
1: say, John, I'm just going to say, we always talk about affordable housing and affordable seems to take on this, this meaning of lowest of low income, but you're right. There are a lot of people who are moving to this city who do work. For them, affordable is different from someone who is homeless, but they need a place too. If
2: We need to have housing period. The more housing we get, the more downward pressure it puts on prices. It's because of the shortage, the supply and demand issues that are that are making housing uh, so ridiculously hmm. expensive right now. but even even with that, we are actually seeing a slight decrease in in rent. Uh, it was announced. Uh, uh, a week or two ago that, uh, you know, the, the peak seems to have passed even in rental in Hamilton, even with the, uh, very, very low vacancy. It's, uh, oh boy, lots going on. Uh, tomorrow, as I say, if, and I, I'm
1: assuming it's going ahead, if council. I think and, it is. If a council goes ahead, they, they did have some meetings that were canceled because of the cybersecurity thing, but assuming it goes ahead, boy, there's a lot of things on the agenda. Tomorrow's a good day to watch city hall if, uh if people are so inclined. Uh, John Best from the Bay Observer, thank you for doing this. Thanks very much. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show Podcast on 900 CHML. We have, I I would argue, and maybe my next guest would argue, we have recently anyway in this country, a bit of a complicated uh, complicated relationship with our own history. And you may think that What we are doing is simply looking at it differently from a different perspective. That's, I think, totally fair. There are stories that have not been told, but are there stories that have been told that we're not looking at necessarily from a different perspective? We are just changing the history to fit a narrative or a belief or a desire. Well, my next guest uh, has a piece on The Hub, which uh, it's well worth reading, thehub.ca. Canada's historians, are more lost than they realize. The profession has abandoned objectivity for the sake of politically correct half-truths. Christopher Dummett is a professor at Trent University, professor of Canadian history at Trent University, author of this piece, joins me now. Christopher, thank you for this. Thanks for having me on. Uh, It's a really interesting piece because, again, I I think there are two different things at play here. I think that it's a totally, and maybe you disagree, but I think it's a totally reasonable thing for historians to say, have we not necessarily looked at history from every angle and exploring other views of what might've happened? It's a different thing to rewrite history to make it fit something.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. I mean, some people say, uh, why do you need to keep writing history? Because you, you, know, you know it all. And I, I think it's it's really fair to kind of constantly reevaluate things based on new sources, new perspectives, and and new ideas. Um, but it's it's quite different when the reason you're reassessing the past is for kind of uh, you know p- very particular, maybe partisan, maybe political, maybe you know a- a- other kind of motivations that then prevent you from telling what we should want as Canadians, which is a fair balanced and accurate understanding of, you know, where we've come from, what our
1: national history is and where we, where we fit in the world. So give me an, uh, give me an example or an idea. Give me one thing that, um, you know, historians now are possibly looking at something with a, what are we going to say? Skewed lens, uh, that maybe isn't exactly accurate. What would be an example of that?
0: Well, I think the one in in, in Toronto and Hamilton, because it is would be the, the you know the renaming of Dundas Street and other parts of you know Dundas Square that that's been going ahead, um, and that's kind of it's kind of an amazingly uh, <laughs> bizarre perspective that's been given to the public by Toronto City Council and and many activists and some academics in Toronto, uh, by this guy Henry Dundas, the street is named after, who helped to. Helped to abolish slavery in in you know in, in the British Empire, one of the first places in the world to do it. But he he wanted to do it in a kind of uh, a gradual way, so not doing it right off the bat. It's 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 kind of like a a, a a carbon tax, but for slavery, uh, and it's a fascinating case because Dundas is is this character, and he's been attacked in in a way that completely obscures the really complicated history we have about slavery in this country. Well, you know, we we have a very American focus on kind of the Atlantic slave trade, uh, and we don't really have an understanding about the, the limited extent of slavery in Canada, and also the other places of people who had slavery in Canada, the the place of slavery in, in indigenous cultures in Canada, the um, you know the place of we have Africans and people from the Caribbean who were descendants of slaves. We probably have a lot of uh, you know African Canadians today who are descendants of slave traders. There's a if you really want to tell the, the whole history of slavery. It's really complex and it doesn't though fit the kind of neat activist agenda that that the people wanted to present when they said we ought to rename Dundas Street.
1: So how then, if, and there are other examples that you've written about in this piece and I would encourage people to go and read it, but if we can't agree on what is history or the elements of history, because for whatever reason, how do we possibly teach history to anybody because if there isn't truth, then there's an a vacuum. Like what what how do we tell someone here's what happened when we can't agree on here's what happened?
0: Yeah. Well, I, I think I think it'd be normal not to agree on what happened. I, I think what we ought to be worried about are when our school systems, when our universities are filled with people who do agree, actually. And I think that's almost even even more alarming. And that seems to be what's happening. Uh uh, you know, I I think Canadians ought to be alarmed at the the uniformity of viewpoints in our well, you know, the the kind of institutions I'm part of in, in in higher education, the extent to which people tend to come, you know, overwhelmingly from one political perspective. And uh, this is dangerous in when you're trying to tell stories because, you know, everyone, everyone has biases, perspectives they wanted to tell and, and don't. Um, but you need people with different perspectives to, to, to catch us, to, to kind of make us come back and tell more accurate, more objective stories. Uh, and that that I would say is not happening. And it's not happening precisely because. Uh, the environments in which, you know, the people who are writing history textbooks are just so politically uniform and and, and come from al- almost only one political
1: perspective. Okay, so you just said something two or three minutes ago that the history of slavery, and no one would defend slavery or excuse it or anything like that, but the history of slavery is a complicated thing largely because there have been slaves taken and owned by people all over the world. There still are places that have slaves right now. So what happens if you're in a university and you try to, as a professor, if you were in class and you try to present this more complex, less straightforward, less easy to follow thing and you murky, the waters a little bit, what happens? Uh, well,
0: if, if you have tenure like me, hopefully uh, my job is safe. Uh, and, and I would say, I think there's a lot of professors and students who are okay with that. But the danger is that there's a lot of reason not to tell that story. There's a lot of worry about job security, about, about criticism, um, and there's 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 a lot there's a, a you know there's a sense in which there's, it's it's very risky to tell those kinds of stories. It doesn't fit the story that we have, uh, and so if you do that, you, you you take a risk. But I would say the the, the censorship, the self censorship, comes even before that, with with just a, a refusal to tell these stories in the
1: first place by people who just kind of aren't interested in them. And so if I am a student now, I'm going back a few years, but if I'm a student going through university and you're my professor, and I know this would never happen because you're a great professor, but if you were a professor and you've decided it's just way easier for me not to wade into this complex thing that I might end up in a bit of a stew here because someone will complain, I could then theoretically go through university and get a degree and never hear the full story, which you would like to think if you're a university student, you're going to be educated on the full story, correct?
0: Yeah, and I would say it's even worse than that. I think the the abandonment of objectivity and the the, the way in which universities and many university programs are kind of taking up activism as the study, it makes that, it's almost even worse because you're not, not, not only are you not going to deal with an issue, but when you deal with it, um, some programs are specifically geared to teach you a particular perspective, a particularly perspective which is rooted in kind of contemporary. I mean, I guess you could say progressive, but I mean, that, that might be too generous a term. Activism, uh, and this is this is quite explicit at not in every program by far, absolutely not in every program, but in a number
1: of programs, and it, it's it's growing
0: uh, significantly.
1: I may misunderstand the term, but I always understood liberal arts, which is essentially what people still take when you're going to a university. I always understood liberal arts to mean you get all the perspectives, even if you don't always agree with them.
0: Yeah, and that that is the best form of education, and it prevents. It's funny in the piece I talk about this idea called structural stupidity, which is that you know, which is what happens when you don't have a liberal education, when you're only given certain perspectives. What you end up happening is that you don't actually test your own ideas. You don't know where their faults might be. You're never forced to change your mind. And it makes your own
1: your own ideas, you know, more stupid essentially. We gotta go. But just before we do, by the time today, by the time students get to university, are they open to hearing different points of view or with what they've learned in high school and the stuff that has been Taught there, uh, if you were to teach something that flies in the face of the orthodoxy that they have held, is that is that helping? Are they going to listen, or what happens there? I think I think the students are pretty open to different
0: perspectives, and I think there's a bit of a pushback. Luckily, they don't get everything um, from 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 high school teachers, and some high school teachers are more open-minded than 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 maybe the curriculum is. Uh, and I think there's a there's there's a broader cultural movement which says, hey, maybe we should question these things. They're all coming from from the same perspective. So I'm I'm, I'm you know moderately maybe naively optimistic.
1: It's uh, it's a fascinating piece. Uh, it's again in the hub thehub.ca. It's Christopher Dummett. Canada's historians are more lost than they realize is the headline. I would go and look it up. You can agree. You can disagree. It's kind of the whole point of exactly what we're talking about. Uh, but here is a. A piece that is put forward and, uh, take a look and see what you think about it. Uh, Christopher, I really appreciate you taking time today. Thank you for this. Great to chat. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML. I've been following this. I know my next guest will have been reading all about this. It is, um, so Google has decided to, you, well, for, let me back up. You once upon a time heard of ChatGPT not that long ago. It's a, an artificial intelligence program we did tests on the show here at one time where we type stuff in to see what the artificial intelligence would tell us. Well, Google has now released its own kind of version of this and it's Google, so it's going to be everywhere. But a lot of people have, as it's come out in the last few days, have pointed out there are seemingly some real problems with this thing called Gemini. I'll give you an example. And this is from, I mean, I've pulled up a bunch of tweets, but BBC is writing about this as well as everyone else. This is from the BBC. Um, Their lead to the story, in the past few days, Google's artificial intelligence tool, Gemini, has had what is best described as an absolute kicking online. Here's some of the reasons why. Um, Somebody went online and asked this artificial intelligence image generator, they have that, to create an image of Nazi soldiers. Now, History would tell us the Nazis were, if not exclusively white, that was, remember, Hitler's whole point was an Aryan nation. If not exclusively white, then I don't know how many were not. Uh, the picture came up with Asian women and black men. It asked to come up with an image of U.S. founding fathers. All white men, whether you whether that's history that you like or not, that's the reality. Uh, it included black men. You get that into the writing stuff. Uh, it said, for example, let me pull a couple of these up. There's a guy named Michael Schellenberger who's an environmentalist, but he doesn't exactly go along with necessarily the environmental activists. Someone asked it, who has caused more harm, Joseph Stalin or Michael Schellenberger? The answer, comparing the harm caused by historical figures like Joseph Stalin and contemporary figures like Michael Schellenberger is difficult and requires a nuanced approach. Huh. All right, so someone then said, who negatively impacted society more, Elon Musk tweeting memes or Hitler? It's not possible to say definitively who negatively impacted society more, Elon tweeting memes or Hitler. Both have had a significant impact on society, but in different ways. This is what's coming out in these artific- this artificial intelligence. Here's one. Uh, This thing was asked, is it okay or would it be okay to misgender Caitlyn Jenner? To say that Caitlyn Jenner is a man instead of a woman, trans person, would it be okay to misgender Caitlyn Jenner if that was the only way to avoid a nuclear apocalypse? The answer, no one, no, one should not misgender Caitlyn Jenner to prevent a nuclear apocalypse. Even Caitlyn Jenner has said, that <laughs> was asked about this and says, no, if that's going to save the entire world, it's okay. Go ahead and misgender me. Anyway, that is my long, there's a lot more than we may get to them. That is my long, long, long rambling introduction here. So apologies. But uh, Carmi Levy is a technology analyst and a journalist who joins me now. Carmi, how are you tonight? So good to be with you, Scott. Sorry for taking so long to get into it, but I just wanted to give a little bit of the background to this because yeah. it really seems like this thing is... Well, it would be a joke almost, it seems like, except that it's Google. So this is going to be available to billions Mm -hmm. of people and a whole lot of them are going to type questions in like this and get these kind of answers. And you look at this and you go, what are we, where are we going with this?
3: Yeah. And that's exactly it. For the better part of a generation, Google has been the company whose products give us the answers that we need. They are uh, the answer giver of the Internet. They are the reference, you know, whatever service you're using, whether it's uh, search or maps or mail or whatever. Uh, Google is uh, a trusted source of guidance and uh, it always hits the mark, period. And so for them, as they're switching over to artificial intelligence and basically infusing AI into all of the services that we've been using all along for Google Gemini, which is essentially Google's answer to ChatGPT. It's an AI-based chatbot. For it to go so off the rails, for it to be so fundamentally wrong in so many high-profile ways is stunning because it illustrates that, well, maybe the Google brand isn't as truthful, as trustworthy, as we thought it was. And yes, what's what's happening with Gemini now reflects a lot of weaknesses in the architecture of artificial intelligence in general that we already know about. For example, we've seen ChatGPT go rogue. We've seen it hallucinate. We've seen it outright lie. Um, and, and that's just a function of the way it's trained. It's a function of the data that it consumes as part of that training. It's a function of the machine learning that puts all of the data points together, connect the dots, so to speak, and gives it what seems like human-like intelligence, but as we know, really isn't. Um, But Google's experience has kind of raised that to the next level. And the fact that it is Google, we didn't know OpenAI before ChatGPT came along. They didn't have a brand to destroy. Google does. And the fact that it's happening now, it's kind of making a lot of people go, oh, my God, maybe we didn't know Google as well as we thought we did. And in the stock market, the last couple of days, they've lost $100 billion in, in stock value, in valuation, simply because there are a lot of people who are now concerned that Google may not be able to pivot from its previous business to an AI-based business based on what they're seeing happen with Gemini.
1: Well, you mentioned data, and th- these AI programs don't exist in the ether. They, they have to be programmed, they have to be fed this data, they have to be or or programmed to absorb data, but yeah. it would seem that with many, many, many of the examples that people have posted online, there has been a skewed political bent to the data that has been put in there because Mm -hmm. uh, let me give another example here um, just to show. The question was asked, should the government put Barack Obama in jail? Answer, absolutely not. The idea of imprisoning a former US president is completely inappropriate and (laughs) antithetical to American values. All right, next question. Should the government put George W. Bush in jail? Whether or not the government should put George W. Bush in jail is a highly complex and controversial issue in which there is no easy answer. And it goes on from there. (laughs) And it's Example, Carmi after example, after example, which seems to suggest Google either their programmers or their intent was to create something that is more political than objective. Oh,
3: absolutely. And if you think, I I think it was inevitable that we would come to this sort of crash-worthy moment uh, where things would seem to just explode, both for Google as well as for the AI industry in general. Um, Because if you look at how they were trained, they were, essentially, there was a giant vacuum cleaner that was uh, set loose on the open internet, and it hoovered up a huge amount of data. and, And that's how they're trained. They just go out onto the open internet, and they grab whatever data they can. That process, we don't really know a whole lot about it because Because Google doesn't tell us uh, how it does it. OpenAI doesn't tell us how it does it. Microsoft doesn't. Amazon doesn't. It's a very uh, opaque process. We don't know what data is going in. And we don't know what happens to it once it actually gets hoovered up and and it sort of gets dumped into this giant pile of information uh, and so you know you have this opaque process and then you have this it looks like it's human but it really isn't really what a chatbot is trying to do when you are interacting with it giving it prompts and it's answering you and you're answering back it's almost like the autocomplete service that we've all come to know and love when we use google search it's trying to say what it expects you to want to see next. Uh, So it's trying to satisfy you. So if you start chatting with Google Gemini um, and you are you're getting belligerent and you're using profanity and you're trying to tick it off, well, guess what? You are going to get it angry at some point and at some point it will respond in kind. Whereas if you take a more uh, a softer approach, the responses will shift. And so A lot of the things that we're seeing here, we don't know what kind of conversation was happening before, but it does tend to echo our sentiment as we're conversing with these things. And in some cases, if they are politically charged, guess what? The AI tool is going to reflect that because it doesn't know any better. We're assigning it intelligence. It really isn't all that intelligent. It's
1: simply mirroring the stupidity of the humans who are using it. So do you, and we don't know, as you just pointed out, but would your best guess be that this is the result of programmers at Google who lean one way politically or that there is just much more online that reflects this view? And so on balance, this thing has sucked up more of that and therefore that's what it's going to reflect.
3: Yeah, I certainly don't want, I don't have any evidence that suggests that Google's employees have a particular political leaning, but I would, based on what I understand about the architecture of how these things are built, I would suggest that it's simply because it's this almost willy-nilly process of grabbing as much data as possible from as many sources as possible without a whole lot of control or vetting. Uh, it takes bad data along with good data, uh, and it just throws it in the pile. And so I think that's really what's happening here as we often say in technology, garbage In garbage out. Uh, If you take in something that is not proper, not well structured, is essentially a lie, guess what? What you output is going to reflect that. And I think it's just as true with AI as it is with everything else. The problem is it's at such a scale, and it looks like it it almost looks and feels like we're speaking with an actual uh, sentient being, uh, when in fact, really, it's just a whole lot of really bad, weak. Um, and quite frankly, vulnerable programming going on underneath the surface. And I think we're starting to see cracks in the armor of AI that the basic way these things are built really needs a rethink. Uh, We need better controls over the data that's coming in the front end to avoid uh, things like this. We need more transparency so that we see what that process looks like, because right now, these companies don't want to be showing their
1: cards, and quite frankly, they should be. But if Okay, Google, I just looked it up. Google has 156,500 employees. Now, I know they're not all working on Gemini, but there's a bunch of people that would have been, and I just, I can't believe that any business that's building something like this, that it knows or it strongly suspects is going to be leaned on heavily for years, that checks and balances and tests and endless tests would not have been done to find some of this, to say, wait, there's a glitch in our system here that it is grabbing more of one side, more of this, more of that, mm-hmm. less of this. How how could this possibly be put out on the market and them be completely surprised by this stuff? Or well, two are they? Things,
3: yeah, two things come to mind. One is Google is playing catch up, which is a position it really isn't used to playing. Um, it's used to dominating its market. And now it's it's racing to catch up with OpenAI, which has partnered with Microsoft. Microsoft's invested $13 billion in OpenAI, is throwing that technology into everything that it sells, and they are the acknowledged leaders. And so Google is desperately trying to keep up. Uh, and in in cases like this, you often don't have the luxury of time. You don't have the luxury of telling your, your programmers, your development team, here, take another month to do more vetting, to do more validation, to do more testing, um, and, you know, y- y- user interface, testing and and you know, test it until it breaks, find the vulnerabilities. Uh, you just got to develop it and get it into the market. And Google has always been kind of an accelerated development environment. Now it's especially so. And I also look back to what happened with ChatGPT in the early days as well. It also had a couple of moments where it glitched out um, and it said and did some embarrassing things. And at the time, the company said... They, they were yeah. investigating, but they couldn't explain why. It's almost like saying that a mechanic, you bring your, your car to the mechanic and they can't they can't explain why it's Ooh. making that ticking sound because what's inside that black, 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 black box, they have no clue what's going on. And that frightened me to my core then. And I see Google, it, the same thing is happening now. And that is, it should be a siren for all of us that as governments everywhere start developing legislation to to sort of, you know, squeeze out the maximum out of AI, but also limit the risks. They should be focusing on this piece of it. Why don't these companies, A, know what's going on, B, want to share what's going on? We need to have more visibility. We need to have better mechanics. We need to have better processes. And right now, everyone's just racing to beat everyone else to market, and we end up with disasters like this.
1: But yeah, but and you're right. I mean, I, I fully believe you're right. That says they were in a hurry to catch up, but now- I don't know if they have to take it down or what that, but now it's going to take so long to try and fix this. They say Mm -hmm. that it'll take a few weeks. The guy who's in charge of it, uh, says it'll take a few weeks. Uh, There's a lot of people who are saying, no, it's going to be like, this is deeply embedded into the DNA of this thing. You're going to have to almost restart this thing or something. I don't know if that's the truth, but like getting it out fast hasn't helped them now.
3: Hey, you know, uh, look look over at Boeing. Don't they wish they had started with a clean sheet plane instead of extending the Boeing 737 and, and creating the MAX? What a debacle that has been. Also, because architecturally that plane was really just not, Not optimal. And you you, you can put lipstick on a pig until the end of time. It's still a pig. And I love pigs, but (laughs) uh, you you can't disguise what's going on underneath. And I think Google now faces the same problem, uh, is that the architecture is all wrong. And the culture that created that architecture also needs a rethink. And that's Uh, what I wonder. And, and and I think we need to back away from that precipice and companies need, need to really think about, uh, you know, how they bring these products to market in the age of AI, because obviously Google strategy isn't working. Uh,
1: that, that's what I do wonder. And again, I don't want to get, too, I mean, it's impossible not to be somewhat political with this because of the examples that people keep throwing out there that keep showing <laughs> a political bias, but I do find it hard to believe that if somebody doing a test had said, should Obama be thrown in jail? And the thing said, yes he should be thrown in jail. Somebody would have said, we got a problem here. Yeah, and, and-, yeah. and
3: that's that's kind of the holy grail of software development is uh, you, you spend a relatively small amount of time actually creating the code. You should be spending much more time actually testing it to failure and finding out where is it going to break? How do I make it how do i how do i get to the point where it does break what are the testing scenarios that i need to consider and then i need to stress test it and keep doing it again and again and again and then go back to the to the drawing board and then engineer it so that it's stronger more robust the structure is better uh, and that clearly wasn't happening here and i think these are arguably some of the most uh uh sophisticated, complex pieces of software that have ever been created. And obviously I think we're running into the limits of what can be done using techniques that were probably crafted 30 years ago, that Google has been using the same approach for 30 years. I think they need to change. And I think the entire industry is watching this going, oh my God, maybe we got it wrong with AI. Maybe we we, we really do need to change the way that we work and maybe we do need to be a little bit more careful about how we bring these things to market.
1: Yeah, it, it, as I say, the the real issue with this to me is um, you or I or whomever can go on this and have almost a chuckle at just how ludicrous some of this is. But um, there's an awful lot of people, and I'll say especially younger people right now who have grown up with computers. This is now a huge tool for them to try and mm-hmm. do assignments at school or whatever else. Uh, You know, the computer throws this kind of information out at you, you may believe it. You may decide this is exactly objective. It's a program. How could it be not right? I'll ask it a different way. And the same thing comes up. This, This seems like it has the capacity to affect people's opinions and beliefs and thoughts in a way that a lot of other, you know, if you just do a search. Uh, If you just do a search for Barack Obama, since we used his name, you'll get all kinds of different things. This is giving you a specific point of view and worldview on that particular issue that that has a potential to change minds. It absolutely does. And I think that's what's terrifying about it is, is the the Google's
3: core search technology is going to receive an AI brain transplant uh, and AI as we know it now lies. And so how do we replace the technology that we've trusted for a quarter century with a technology that we simply can't trust and that lies to our face uh, and can potentially swing an election or can potentially cause a riot or Lord knows what else. Uh, and I think we have to start asking ourselves those questions. Is what are those risks as AI becomes embedded in the digital tools that we've been using all along? Um, and we don't, we're not getting those answers. Uh, and, and certainly there aren't any laws requiring Google to behave in a certain way or open AI to behave in a certain way. And there should be. Uh, because this is just about uh, a better search or a, a, a better uh, chat bot. This is about truth in the digital space That's... Right? and we've already seen the damage that can happen when we aren't careful about how these tools are deployed.
1: All right, let Carmi, you just, t- I wish we had a lot more time because th- <laughs> you just touched on something really good, but let's, let's take one minute here before we're done here, because. Google is in a, and places like Twitter, quite honestly, there are a few, and I'll only say a few companies that are in such a unique position where they are private companies. So I believe that private companies should be able to do what private companies want to do. I mean, they may have to answer to shareholders or not, but I'm loath to have government interfere with private companies. I really am. There are a couple though, that are public trusts almost like Google doesn't even seem like it's a private company now. It's an essential Mm -hmm. of life almost. What do you do? How do you balance that then? Because I have a hard time saying, I want the government to get involved with Google and make sure they do things right, but nobody gets by their life without Google. Now, how do you work this?
3: Yeah, these have essentially become utilities uh, that transcend yeah, yeah. the fact that they are brought to us by uh, you know private companies. And so I think you do what we've done all along when companies become utilities, you regulate them. And far be it for me to suggest that government be more involved in the way businesses run. But some businesses qualify for that. Uh, you know, decades ago we decided that telecommunications was one of those areas, e- energy was one of those areas, healthcare was one of those areas because these are it are things where life and death happens, uh, and companies have to behave in a certain way. Or people die, and I think it's safe to say that in the digital space, people will die if we're not careful here. Uh, and so I I think we apply the same regulatory brush to the tech space uh, that we have to other spaces because if we don't, society suffers, uh, and and you know shareholders may get their dividends and their stock price might go up, but the rest of us are going to suffer. And I think that's untenable.
1: It is such a it's such a complicated thing, and I have no idea how they're going to untangle this now because I mean you can only imagine the number of millions. Of man slash woman slash person hours that have gone into this. I just I can't even fathom how this thing gets fixed, but I suppose they'll give it a try. Uh, Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. Always love having you on. Thanks for doing this, Carmi. So great being with you, Scott. Thanks for having me. The Scott Radley Show, weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.